I think the fact that I myself came back here probably <laughs> says something. And I mean like both the interns and the full-time researchers. They are truly experts in what they work on. And it has been a joy to, to get to work on the projects that I did, not just this summer, but last summer as well. I was often told that MSR was, is a very special place and I did not realize that until I got here and I completely agree. I think it is very different from a lot of academic departments but also very similar in a lot of ways and I enjoy that. I enjoy the differences and I also enjoy the similarities. Welcome to Intern Insights a Microsoft research podcast featuring brilliant students who are contributing to the research and advances at Microsoft as part of the renowned internship program at Microsoft Research. I'm Dr. Josh Benelo, a senior cryptographer here at Microsoft Research, and I'm talking today with two of our finest interns, Anane Kulshrest and Karan Nuatia, uh, who are working with me on a project called Election Guard a free open source toolkit that allows voters to check that their votes have been accurately counted. So welcome, Anane. Welcome, Karen. I'm going to start by asking you to introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your own background, where you're from, uh, your schooling, your graduate work, what's going on there. So Anane, would you like to start? Sure. Thanks, Josh. So I, I grew up in I grew up in India. I grew up in New Delhi. I moved to the U.S. Uh, for my undergrad at Stanford in math and computer science. I was very interested in public policy, so I stayed on for a master's. Um, and I've been trying in my graduate work at Princeton. I've been trying to apply techniques um, from cryptography um, to public policy. And my graduate work is mostly techniques um, that are useful to public policy problems. Um, and working on the interplay between privacy and accountability, and how cryptography can offer solutions there. Wonderful. Karan, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm originally from Assam, India. Uh, then I went to high school in uh, in Delhi. Uh, I came to the U.S. Uh, for college. Uh, I went to uh, Cornell in upstate New York. I majored in computer science, uh, and I decided to uh, do a PhD. Uh, currently, I'm a third-year student at, at the University of Pennsylvania. My research focuses on large-scale systems, uh, especially the privacy and security aspects of, of large-scale systems. Great, thanks. So um, there are a lot of opportunities that you have. You're, you've done you know, great work as, as students, and um, you could have stayed at your university. You could have gone other places. Why did you choose to spend the summer at Microsoft Research? So um, I'm uniquely interested in elections, I think. Um, I consider elections to be a very important uh, public system that cryptography can improve upon. Um, my interest in these sorts of techniques, you know, predates just elections and the election problem. Um, like, I think the same techniques can be applied to auctions um, as well. And so when I heard about Election Guard, I think I was immediately attracted to it. And, and that's why I applied. And that's why I'm, I'm here at Microsoft Research. Karen? Sure. So I wanted to come to, uh, to Microsoft Research because I wanted to, uh, like, apply uh, research in, like, a real-world setting, uh, the problems that industry cares about. Uh, and I interned here uh, last summer as well. I interned in the data systems team, and I loved what I did last summer, so I wanted to come back. And this time, I wanted to do something that was closer to what I do in my PhD research. So I decided to apply to the security and crypto team. And then uh, Josh uh, sent me an email about, about this project called Election Guard, uh, which I was completely fascinated by because the underlying crypto that's used in this project is extremely similar to what I'm already doing in my PhD. Uh, and I wanted to use 
what I already know and want to learn more about in a real world context, such as in um, in the selection context. So let, let's talk a little bit more about Election Guard. I uh, wonder if you can tell the listeners a little bit about what it is and how it works. It's okay to go into the the math a little bit, get a little bit geeky, maybe talk a little bit about um, the fundamentals of homomorphic encryption and how how that leads to things. Why don't you start, Karen? Uh, sure. So Election Guard is uh, generally about end-to-end verifiability while still maintaining the privacy of individual voters. Uh, so what this means is uh, there's a few properties. Firstly, uh, a voter should be able to verify that their vote was, was correctly counted. Uh, this just means that if they voted for candidate A, uh, then they should be uh, confident that the vote was actually recorded for candidate A. Secondly, this also means that anyone should be able to verify that all the correctly recorded votes were correctly uh, tallied up. Uh, and this preserves the integrity of the election. At the same time, uh, uh, other voters should not be able to know what uh, a voter's vote was. And they should not be able to prove to others who they voted for, because otherwise they could sell their vote. Now, that, that's like the high-level idea. Uh, in terms of how we actually do that, there's a few cryptographic tools that we use. Uh, for example, homomorphic encryption. This is used to encrypt the user's vote and add up all the voters' individual votes. Uh, homomorphic encryption allows us to uh, do computations on, uh, on, on ciphertext. So um, let's say there's two candidates, A and B, and uh, say a voter voted for candidate A. Uh, then the vote is uh, an encrypted vote of candidate A, and similarly for the other candidate. And the election authorities can simply just sum up all these individual votes which are encrypted, uh, and then decrypt that uh, later. Yeah, so, so this this allows um, the the votes to be tallied without ever being individually decrypted. They're only decrypted in the aggregate. Right. Only Great. the final result is is known. Great. Um, do you want to add anything? Um, I, I yeah. I guess we could offer that analogy, right? So end-to-end verifiability is fairly easy to do if you don't care about ballot privacy, right? Everyone votes, everyone votes uh, in, in a public fashion, all votes are public. And so now it is very easy for a voter to verify that their vote is indeed counted. And it's very easy for everyone to verify that the tally is correct. But of course, we don't want people to vote publicly. So that's why we need cryptography. And that's why we need homomorphic encryption to be able to compute on private data and compute this tally function eventually without revealing anything about uh, about the votes themselves. Great. So um, one of the uh, limitations of the original uh, deployment of Election Guard was that um, this homomorphic encryption was done only after voters indicated what their preferences were. And that has some limitations because uh, it can't be used well for things like mail-in voting. Um, because uh, there's no way for the encryption to be done in front of the voter on a piece of paper. Um, we, we were dependent on um, voters using the devices in precinct in, in order to vote. So we've done some work to support mail-in voting. And Anna, can you talk a little bit about what you've done there? Sure. Um, so the in, the in the current design, in the new version of Election Guard, um, it, we, we allow election authorities to pre-encrypt ballots, which do not uh, contain any voter selections. So these are just uh, encryptions of every possible selection that a voter can make. And and a, a voter can then choose what selections they would like to make, just as a normal mail-in ballot, where you get to fill it in in, in ink. And uh, so a voter can just select which encrypted selections they want. And later on, election authorities can aggregate voter selections um, 
and uh, compute an election record, which looks indistinguishable from an election record produced by in-person voting. And you can still have the the guarantees of end-to-end verifiability um, with mail-in voting. Although the the challenge part is a bit is a bit different because you have to ask for a new ballot every time. So that is the main difference between the mail-in challenge and the normal challenge. Indeed. Uh, another one of the uh, limitations um, in the original deployment of Election Guard is the dependence on homomorphic encryption and homomorphic tallying um, was not compatible with ranked choice voting. So, Karen, I'd like to ask you a little bit about you know what work you've done to, to enable ranked choice voting to be used with Election Guard. Sure. Uh, so, uh so as Josh mentioned, certain voting uh, systems such as like uh, rank choice voting or uh, write-in votes cannot be done using homomorphic tallying. So the idea uh, that we use is called MixNets. Um, uh, so MixNet uh, basically uh, at a high level, it uh, shuffles the order of the votes uh, such that uh, after the shuffling is done, uh, the random order that we get at the end does not reveal anything about the voters. So in particular, uh, let's say there's a few entities uh, which are the mixers. Uh, once the voters have voted, their votes are still encrypted. But then instead of being homomorphically tallied, uh, they are sent to the first uh, mixer. Uh, the first mixer re-encrypts all the ciphertext, which just means adding an encryption of zero to each vote, and then sh- uh, permutes them by sh- uh, shuffling the order, and then pass it along to the next mixer and so on until uh, we get the order from the last mixer. Uh, once we get the final random order from the last mixer, we can decrypt the votes just as we did in the homomorphic case. Uh, and doing so does not reveal anything about uh, the voters' choices themselves. Okay, so while we're we're down in the weeds, there are a few more things that we've been uh, working on um, this summer. And another one of the challenges that Election Guard has had is that when voters check that their votes are accurately recorded, um, that capability didn't kick in until after an election closed. And that might be two weeks after um, election day, and, and it's uh, not very satisfying. So, uh, Anade, you've been doing some work on enabling voters to do the verification of their ballots right away in real time at, at a poll site. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um so the, the key problem here is that I, as a voter, would like to test that this ballot marking device isn't cheating me. And it is not very satisfying, like you said, to know that after two weeks, right? So the idea is that voters should know there and then, um, should be able to unlock ballots that they don't want to cast um, at the polling booth itself. And so the technique that, that you designed uh, that allows us to reveal the randomness um, that the, that was used in encrypting the vote, um, instead of revealing the key, because we can't reveal the key, the election, the, an individual vote cannot be decrypted. But what can be done is the randomness that was used to encrypt it can be revealed to the voter, and the voter can can re-encrypt the vote using the same randomness and check whether the machine encrypted their vote correctly. So in some sense, instead of decrypting something, we're re-encrypting the same data and checking whether the encryption is, is the same or not. And so in some sense, we get a check on correctness of, of the ballot marking device. And the voter can do this using, well, in theory, a calculator and a paper. But uh, I think it's better if they use an independent verifier app to do this. Mm-hmm. And and can you say a little bit about the uh, study that uh, you're, you're working on right now, feverishly trying to, to get in place? Uh, yeah, test we, some would of this? Like to, we would like to test... Uh, 
how voters feel about uh, doing this sort of verification in person, how they feel about using an external app that is just distinct from the ballot marking device, what the effect of using paper receipts is. We're interested in all these questions and um, trying to increase voter confidence. So we're going to go into the community and go into the field and try to catch some voters and ask them questions. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that experience and, and what we learn. We, we've already learned a lot just in trying to prepare the study. <laughs> Lots more when we actually do it, I, I expect. Um, so, Karen, another um, thing that people have raised about um, Election Guard is the fear of quantum computers and how quantum computers might come along and break cryptographic methods sometime in the future. Um, it's not really an urgent concern for Election Guard, but it's a, a long-term concern, something we need to, to be aware of. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the research that you've been doing to study uh, alternatives to, to uh, address the threats of quantum computation? Sure. Uh, so I think this is a real and a very important concern. So concretely, uh, I guess the issue is that uh, what a malicious uh, group of people or the government themselves could do is they could throw the encrypted votes right now and then decrypt them later using a quantum computer once uh, that becomes efficient. So currently, uh, we are using uh, the Algamal crypto system. And while it is very efficient, easy to understand and so on, uh, it's not quantum resistant. So... This means that we'll have to start thinking about how we could move uh, in-person voting systems with end-to-end -end verifiability to uh, ones which are quantum resistant. Uh, so I've been looking into some of the latest work in this area, and there's a lot of promising papers that have come recently. So for example, there's a couple of them which are built on the hardness of the lattice problem, in particular using the BGV crypto system, which is quantum resistant. Um, so... One challenge with uh, with BGB as as compared to uh, Al Gamal is that it's not very efficient currently, at least, uh, to prove in zero knowledge that the encryption was done correctly. Uh, this is something that uh, we had not discussed before, but since we have been talking about verifiability, now one important aspect of this is proving that a user's vote was encrypted in a well-formatted manner. Uh, this means that when the user goes into vote in a voting machine and they vote for a particular candidate. Uh, the voting machine should not record their vote to be for multiple candidates or for no candidates, for example, uh, if it's an election where they could only vote, vote for one candidate. Uh, so this has to be proved in zero knowledge, uh, which means that the voting machine or the prover is able to prove that uh, there's only one, one vote uh, and no less and no more. But it doesn't actually reveal who the vote was for. So while this is fairly efficient to do in the Algamal crypto system, uh, this is still not the case for the BGV crypto system. So uh, one important challenge going forward would be uh, to think about like how we could adapt the existing ideas, such as the one I mentioned, uh, using lattices, and explore the research aspects of how to make proving zero knowledge or even encryption itself more efficient and bring it closer to, uh, to being uh, deployed in practice. So... One challenge with a, with election guard and, and the techniques that are used there is that um, if there is mathematics behind it, and um, although we can mathematically prove something, we may have trouble convincing individuals um, who may not like mathematics, may not be immersed in it, that this really proves that an election is correct. Um, we're asking voters to do things like um, check their votes and, and challenge things and 
it's possible that no voters will will challenge it. So what what kinds of challenges do you see in getting voters to accept this technology, to use this technology, feel comfortable with the technology? What, what can we do here? So I think voter education is key. Um, without, without voters understanding that their ballots are safe and secure and will not be individually decrypted, only the result will be known. Without them understanding that, I think a lot can go wrong. Um, a lot of misinformation can be spread about these sorts of verifiable election systems, which the sorts of misinformation that is impossible to spread about current election systems, right? And that obviously remains a central challenge. But like you mentioned, I, I think the biggest challenge is just voter apathy, right? What if no one cares? Um, and if... And I think that's a larger societal issue, right? Like general apathy about our political institutions is on the rise. And I think that definitely endangers this entire verifiable election project as well. Yeah. And, and you know, we don't want to imply that we've solved all of the problems. Um, I think using this technology today is great. It's, it, it can improve what we have tremendously. But there are still questions. And, and Karen, uh, I know you've been looking a little bit about uh, dispute resolution, for instance, as one of the things we'd like to uh, find better ways to handle. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, so this problem of dispute resolution basically is that, um, so while currently uh, voters have the choice to either cast or spoil their ballot, this means that after they have entered a vote, they can either choose to challenge it, uh, which means that as Anune had mentioned before, that wo their vote will be decrypted and shown to the voter, or they can just choose, choose to cast it, in which case it will be encrypted. And uh, the voter then cannot prove to anyone else that they voted for a specific candidate, because otherwise they, they'd be able to sell their vote. Uh, but uh, this creates uh, a problem because uh, since the voter isn't able to prove who they voted for, the, the election authorities, um, if they are cheating, there's no known way right now to resolve uh, this conundrum. So you know, one of the challenges of, of dispute resolution is that even though a voter might be able to tell that something is wrong, um, the voter might not have quite the evidence um, that would be needed to show a third party and prove that something went wrong. Can, can you say a little bit more about um, how that fits into dispute resolution? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, as Josh was saying, um, even though the voter uh, themselves individually know that their vote was recorded differently, uh, they are not able to prove to a third party that this was the case. Say the voter actually voted for candidate A, and then they challenged their vote. But when the vote is decrypted using the verification process, it's actually sh shown to be a candidate B instead of A. Uh, but only the voter themselves knows that they voted for candidate A. Uh, and of course, as we had mentioned before, they cannot prove to someone else that they actually voted for candidate A. So this this creates the problem of how to resolve this issue. Uh, I think this is some combination of, of cryptography and, and policy uh, because there's a broader question here of like, let's say we had a technique to, uh, to resolve this. This would mean that the integrity of the election would be in question. So how do we then uh, resolve it? Like, do we cancel the whole election? Uh, do we try to find the source of uh, the bug and then let the voter vote again? Or what else do we do? 
one thing I, I think that's being highlighted here is that elections aren't just about math, um, that uh, elections um, involve mathematics, but there's a social uh, component. Um, there are advocacy aspects and rules that have to go into this. Election administration is uh, a, a discipline unto itself. Um, so one of the interesting things about working on elections is bringing together people from these many disciplines to find uh solutions to some of these problems. I wonder if you have any thoughts or experiences on how to try to bring a mathematical solution into the uh, the world that is not so much about mathematics. I think we begin by hiding the mathematics, <laughs> uh, but making it more palatable, I think, in ways uh, for voters that are not as mathematically inclined, I think is a big uh, first step. So I think WhatsApp has tried to use visual fingerprints, right? There's a there's an entire literature on on using uh, non-mathematical ways to allow people to deal with cryptographic objects. I think that line of work is central to uh, deploying these sorts of verifiable elections. Um, on the point of dispute resolution, I think uh, one thing that I think people should understand is that the problem here is that we would like voters to not be able to prove who they voted for if there was no problem, but be able to prove who they voted for if there was a problem, right? And that is the central issue with dispute resolution. Yeah, that, that certainly is one, one of the deep challenges that we, we face in this. Um, is there anything else that uh, either of you would like to add? Um, sure. I think uh, regardless of the current open challenges, this is... Uh, like a great step forward because uh, I personally believe that uh, all data that uh, leaves your, for example, mobile device should be encrypted by default. Um, this is currently not the case. Uh, and, is, and I know we are talking about in-person voting, uh, but generally I think uh, a person's data should be encrypted by default. And this is certainly not the case right now. And this is why uh, there's a lot of data breaches in the first place. So if everyone's uh, data uh, is secure, then even with breaches, uh, there's nothing a hacker could could learn. Yeah, homomorphic encryption. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Microsoft Research is a very active place. There are many other interns around doing many things. Uh, have either of you had um, many opportunities to talk with other interns and find out what they're working on and interact um, uh, and learn about their work and contribute to, to uh, yours as well? Sure. So as since we have been discussing uh, post-quantum, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, who just finished his internship, uh, Mihil, uh, he has been working on sort of the problem that I was saying, how to bring quantum resistance systems closer to practice. Uh, he has been thinking on like uh, designing the hardware uh, to make this closer to reality. So um, you've... you've given up your summers to some extent to you know your work at Microsoft research but it's not all work of course yeah. um, there are lots of other things that go on lots of activities and one of them is the the Microsoft puzzle day um, and you both did participate your team did very well I wonder if you'd you know, like to say a little bit more about the experience of, of puzzle day or other um, activities here that are intended to, to be more fun and social? 
yeah, I, I, I think I thoroughly enjoyed Puzzle Day. I was, I was bummed we couldn't find teams for the other puzzle events. There's a lot that I do not expect to find so many puzzle events over the summer. Uh, actually, before coming to Microsoft, I did not know about the puzzle culture. So this is definitely a pleasant surprise. Um, yeah, and uh, I think if I'm in the Seattle area, I would like to probably contribute to this later on. Yeah, I definitely enjoy uh, all the intern events that, uh, that Microsoft has been organizing. Uh, so they uh, also organized like other events beyond the puzzle one, such as like one where we went to Top Golf, so, uh, and that was very fun. Uh, for example, uh, and it's also a great uh, way to get to know more about the other interns. And there are interns here who are from all over the world, uh, and and I think I've actually learned a lot from interns who work not just in the areas that I work in, but also from other areas to see what's the state of the art. What are the important problems, not just in academia, but in industry? In some sense, the intern events are like the social aspects of conferences because they're pretty much just graduate students, right? <laughs> yeah, but um, what, one thing I learned in my graduate student days is that the real activity doesn't necessarily go on in the, the talks and the meeting rooms. The opportunity to socialize and learn from others outside in the hallways and the dinners really is where things happen. Because most of your collaborators are, mo are most likely from your peer group and, you know, they, they will also be doing interesting things in the future. So it's, it's definitely good to know who's doing what. Yeah. And I think the, the serendipity of bumping into people in the halls and asking what they're doing and uh, finding out uh, leads to more interesting research sometimes than the, the things that you come in planning on doing right. and, and working on. Um, so um, uh, with this experience, I know you're getting near the end of, uh, of your internships, both of you. Um, is this something that you'd recommend to others? Why, why, why should others consider coming to Microsoft Research? Uh, I think the fact that I myself came back here probably <laughs> says something. I definitely love uh, working here at Building 99. Uh, it's probably one of the most in, uh, most innovative buildings in the world. Uh, and that's because of uh, the people here. Uh, uh, and I mean like both the interns and the full-time researchers. They are truly experts in what they work on. And it has been a joy to, to get to work on the projects that I did, not just this summer, but last summer as well. This is something I'd wholeheartedly, uh, totally recommend to anyone who's, who's, uh, who's thinking about doing an internship in industry. I, I was often told that MSR was, is a very special place, and I did not realize that until I got here, and I completely agree. Um, I think it is, it, it, it is very different from a lot of academic departments, but also very similar in a lot of ways, and I enjoy that. Um, I enjoy the differences and I also enjoy the similarities. So after you go back to your, your respective PhD programs, um, I know you're at different stages. Um, Anane, you're getting close to finishing. Can you talk a little bit about what you hope to do, would like to do after you, you complete your PhD? Uh, sure. Um, I am going to be on the academic job market, so I, I guess this is the self-promotional part of this podcast. Uh, my my thesis is, like I mentioned, is on uh, cryptography for public policy, so I apply cryptographic techniques to problems of privacy and accountability. And I'm interested in the independence that academia offers, um, so that is my plan currently. But um, that might change. I am very open to working for nonprofits or working in government to deploy some of these things in the future. So I'm, I'm very open to all of those ideas. But I think my home generally would be in academia. So, Karen, you've got a couple of years left, I think. Um, but what would you like to do when, when you've completed your PhD? So I'm on the other side of the spectrum, I guess. 
uh, I definitely want to work in industry after I graduate. And this is because while I've enjoyed working and doing research in academia, I after I graduate, I want to work on bringing ideas from research into practice. And uh, a lot of it still requires fundamental research. Uh, so some of the problems uh, uh, are only known in industry. And, and a lot of it is due to like the scaling issues uh, which companies like Microsoft face. Uh, and I think that's a very, very unique challenge uh, because not only do you have to do fundamental research, at the same time, you have to potentially work with the product teams to figure out how you can integrate it into real-world products. And one other thing that draws me to industry is the fact that I think it's, it's a challenge and a joy to uh, get to work on uh, on products and ideas which can impact millions of people around the world. So we um, talked about your backgrounds a little bit at the beginning and then dove into the geeky stuff very quickly. So I think I'd like to circle back a little bit and, and uh, get a little bit more of a sense of um, what, what you uh, enjoyed um, in your childhood, growing up, how you got to the point um, where you, know, you you both came to the U.S. to, to go to university. Um, Anande, you were talking to me a little bit before we started about um, your uh, difficulty with geometry as a student. Do you want to you know, say more about you know, how you managed to work your way around uh, geometry in, in, sure. in school? Sure. I, I, uh, I was very interested in mathematics in high school, um, and uh, I decided that I could not really handle geometry. I focused on number theory. I got very interested in number theory. I... Uh, it was sad that all the Olympiad questions in number theory were very easy, but but I was very interested in number theory when I got to college, and I was very interested in doing research. Um, and in India, we have wonderful undergrad institutions, the IITs, except they're they're very good undergraduate institutions. They do not they're not research institutions. They're not uh, akin to an R1 university in the US. They they do not, and also more importantly in India, public funding in research often goes to government labs and not the the state institutions or private universities like it is everywhere else in the world and so what this leads to is a dearth of funds in research at both the undergrad and the graduate level in india so it was very clear to me um in high school and i came to the us for a math camp in i think 11th grade and it became very clear to me that if i wanted to do research at the undergrad level i would have to uh, get into a college in the us and that's why i ended up applying um and when i got to the US, I realized that uh, pure mathematics was way too hard for me. I, I, there were people that were much smarter that could uh, do uh, you know, mathematical research, and I figured that um, analysis was just way too difficult. So I switched to algebra, decided to do more number theory, and decided to apply that. And cryptography was, I think, a natural extension um, of that. That combined with, I think, my own politics, and uh, around that time when I was in college, Phil Rogaway's talk on the moral character of cryptographic work I think really uh, changed my perspective on 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 what cryptography is and what it can do, um, and and yeah, I think uh, it was my freshman year when I decided I would like to do more of this, um, and yeah, ever since then I've been trying to find more problems to apply these techniques to. Yeah, it's it's great that you've been able to find you know, interesting problems to apply the, these methods to, and, and that also have social impact. Uh, one thing you mentioned: um, many of the listeners might not be aware of the existence of math camps. And that might seem alien. Can can you just say a little bit more about yeah. you know, what they are and how they work? Yeah. Um, so in 
in the U.S. and around the world now, there are a lot of summer camps for uh, students that are interested in, in mathematics that is not arithmetic, right? So introduction to college-level mathematics in high school, I think, is very important for people to understand whether they would like to study mathematics because college mathematics is nothing like high school mathematics, right? Um, and uh, a lot of these, like Sumac, Promise, uh, the Ross Math Camp in the U.S., um, now also have uh, uh, international branches. There's, uh, there's a Promise program in India now, but these are highly selective, you know, math camps. And most of the folks I met at these camps uh, ended up doing math majors, uh, and I think about 50% are actually doing math PhDs. So uh, people know very, very early if they're interested in math, and th these are some of the places where they find out. Uh, I'll say quickly, I did the Ross camp back in, I'm embarrassed to admit, 1976 when I was in high school. Uh, so it's been going on for a long time. Uh, Karen, can you talk a little bit about um, uh, your path to Cornell, what you were doing as, uh, as um, a high school student and, and maybe even before that? Sure. So I went to a boarding school uh, for high school in, in, in New Delhi. I guess I've been uh, moving far, farther and farther away from my hometown. Uh, so, uh, while I was thinking about like what I would major in in college, um, I initially actually came in as a chemistry major because uh, uh, I had enjoyed doing that in high school. Um, and in fact, I told uh, my friends and my parents that I'll major in anything but computer science before coming to college. All all my friends in high school enjoyed it, but for some reason, I I completely hated it. I don't know why. I had never actually taken a computer science course before I came to college. Uh, but when I took my uh, intro chemistry class, I uh, I happened to get like a C. Uh, so I realized uh, this is probably not for me. So I, I, I wanted to explore uh, what else I could major in instead. Uh, one good thing about undergraduates in the U.S. as compared to India is that in the U.S. you don't have to know what you're going to major in uh, right away. You can have a, like a preferred major, but you're uh, free to change it. In India, you have to... Uh, apply to a specific major, and that's what uh, most people end up doing because of the requirements. Uh, so, uh, in my freshman year at Cornell, I decided to take a few different classes very broadly. Uh, I took a, a courses in environmental science, material science, computer science, physics, etc. Uh, and I think what stuck with me was was the intro computer science course. Uh, I had never taken a course before, as I said, uh, but I think. Uh, it was a completely new paradigm for me, which I wanted to learn more about. And then I kept taking more and more uh, computer science classes. I realized like this is what clicks for me. Uh, and what made me really interested in, in doing research in it was my computer systems course, where we focus a lot on like the security aspects of computer science. So for example, uh, this is a very simple attack, uh, but we did like a buffer overflow attack. Uh, and I realized like this is a real world problem because even a simple attack can be deadly. Uh, so that's when I knew I wanted to work on security in general. And after I started uh, my PhD, I got more into the cryptographic aspects of security and privacy, such as uh, homomorphic encryption, proving in zero knowledge, mixed match, and so on. Uh, and I guess that's what I'm doing this summer too. That's great. Yeah, um, I, I, it's important, I think, for, for people listening to understand that we don't, as researchers, have one path that we're just following, you know, directly your whole time. I, I myself uh, was a, a math major. I mentioned the Ross math camp I did before I was an undergraduate. I went to graduate school in mathematics thinking, I'm doing math, I'm doing math. And I found, as, as you mentioned, Adonai, that 
I was not going to be that good uh, at it. So uh, after a year in graduate school, I looked back at my uh, uh, undergraduate time and said, yeah, I did okay in my math classes. I got A's and B's. But all those computer science classes that I took just for fun were you know, all A's because they were so much fun. Maybe I should have learned something from that. And that's when I switched into computer science and found my way into cryptography. So um, it, it's, it's good to have the opportunity to uh, move back and forth and, and find the thing that's really right for you. Yeah, one thing I wanted to add is that uh, if you're truly passionate about learning something, it's fine if you don't get it right away. Uh, this was the case for me, even in the intro coming to science course that I took. Uh, for example, I struggled to understand a concept uh, of like recursion. Uh, and it took me quite a few months before I actually, you know, got what it really is. Uh, and my younger sister, actually, she's a couple years younger than me. She helped me understand what it is. But I realized, like, uh, even if this seems hard at first, um, if I'm really passionate about something and I ask others for help, that can be really helpful. And, uh, and I'm glad to be where I'm at right now. Um, on another tangent, I will mention that in terms of interdisciplinary research, this is, I think, often the case that departments don't know how to bucket you. So um, I think a lot of tech policy research, even today, happens outside CS departments. Um, so I tried applying to non-computer science departments, right, policy departments with uh, the sort of work I was doing, and they obviously did not have the, the expertise to advise me. But then computer science departments that do have the expertise also relinquish a lot of policy work, right, to other departments. And I, I don't think that's, that's right. And I think that needs to change in academia. Okay. Is there anything that either of you would like to add about your experiences here or recommendations to other people and you know, in, in, uh, in, in how to you know, best learn and contribute and, and go forward? Sure. Uh, so having spent two summers at Microsoft, uh, one thing I'd uh, recommend to other interns is reaching out to other people here, not just other interns, but also other full-time researchers. Uh, as I had mentioned before, spending time with other interns can be can be very very valuable, and uh, you can also get to learn more about uh, what other people here are working on, uh, both interns and full timers. Uh, and this is something that we may think that uh, it could be easy to do, but then as we spend uh, more and more time research over the course of the summer, we may uh, not have enough time to spend time with with other interns, for example. Uh, but I just want to say uh, this this is one of the most rewarding aspects of interning here. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to that and, I, and say that, yeah, I think uh, meeting other interns is actually a very rewarding aspect because we don't get that at our home institutions as much, right? We only get to talk with our research groups and, you know, other people in our programs. And that sort of cross-pollination does not happen very naturally outside of conferences. So um, I think that's a very natural pathway to find collaborators, to find interesting problems to work on, um, even after the internship. And I think I would highly recommend that. Yeah. So, so Karen, I, I know, you know, you're... Um, deeply involved in pre preparing your end of internship talk uh, um, and and wrapping things up uh, and 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 Andre, I I know that the study is uh, pressing down hard on 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 our time and trying to get things done. So I want to thank you both for taking the time and uh, uh, sharing with um, listeners about your experiences uh, here at the summer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.